Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Joanna Vargas, Joanna Vargas. Joanna tells me that caregiving is her love language. Having had childhood aspirations to be an artist of some kind, Joanna studied photography and women's studies in university with a particular fascination surrounding how women were portrayed in art and media. Joanna's graduate thesis looked at whether or not women's beauty routines existed for the male gaze, concluding that no, self-care is something we do for ourselves. Joanna briefly pursued a career in photography upon graduating, quickly realising that her interests lay within the beauty industry. Following a number of years working as an esthetician, Joanna had grown tired of seeing clients given the same facials and being sold the same products. Driven by a wish to create her own treatments and be guided by each individual's needs, Joanna opened her first namesake spa in New York City in 2006. By 2011, having grown her business with no, by 2011, having grown her business with little more than word of mouth marketing, Joanna had become something of an industry go-to and had accumulated an impressive list of celebrity clientele. Passionate about delivering good nutrition to the skin and wanting her clients to be able to achieve and maintain spa results from home, she developed her own product line. Despite running a now international skincare brand with 28 SKUs, Joanna still works as a facialist five days a week, taking the opportunity to continue learning, to see what modern skin needs, what concerns her clients are looking to treat and, in her words, formulating from the chair. In this conversation, Joanna shares the ins and outs of finding the right manufacturer, why her early memories of her grandmother has served as the inspiration for her entire career, and how grateful she is to be her tattooed Latina self in the landscape of the beauty industry. Joanna, you grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, so I would love to start right there at the very beginning. What is your earliest memory of beauty? Um, I think my earliest memory of beauty is um, putting makeup on my grandmother and doing her hair and watching her. She used to take a bath every night and then she would put on body cream and then use some powder and everything smelled very beautiful and floral and everything was soft. Um, and I, I really have always said that she is my beauty, my original beauty icon and my inspiration for my career. When you were putting makeup on her, was that something that you were putting your hand up and saying, I want to do your makeup or was she asking you to do it? Uh, no, I was putting my hand up and saying <laughs> I wanted to do it. I, she had very soft skin and, um, I liked putting, um, serums and lotions on her face. And then, uh, you know, it was the seventies. So unfortunately she also got blue eyeshadow put on Classic. her eyes. 
I know it's an oldie, but a goodie. And also blue eyeliner. That was Ooh. a gem. Also the double blue. <laughs> um, and uh, I just loved, you know, just she used to um, be such a great caretaker to me and be so loving and, and all of that. So I think it was my love language back to her that I wanted to take care of her as well. And I have to say that in my career, that's the thing I love the most is taking care of people. Well, you clearly had an early interest in beauty, but when you were that age, when you were a child, what did you think that you might be when you grew up? Um, that's a good question. I guess I always thought that I would be um, some type of artist. I felt like I had an artist's mind um, or a, a creative mind. I was always doing artist, you know, like projects and things in my room. Um, so I always thought that it would be something visual. Um, I, I didn't even know there were careers in beauty or else I, I definitely would have fantasized about that for sure. I know that you studied photography and women's studies at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear more about that. Where did you think those particular majors would eventually take you? Um, well, I wanted to... I was pretty um, a very hardcore feminist uh, growing up and was very interested in the history of my country and, and the world as it, as it pertained to women um, and women's rights and all of that stuff. But I think, I mean, my, my thesis uh, that I wrote when I graduated was about a woman's image and, you know, um, why do we wear makeup? Is it for us or for, or, or because we're trying to be interesting or attract people's attention? Um, and there was a lot of feminist discourse at the time about that. And so, you know, my conclusion was that women, women do it for, for ourselves. We, we want to do what makes us feel good. And I think that that's a really interesting way of looking at self-care is that we're just, um, doing what's feel what makes us feel good and it, I think it empowers us. I mean this might be drawing a long bow here or perhaps not but do you think that having that very deep understanding of women's representation I guess in media art history you name it would you say that that has influenced your approach to beauty today? Yeah absolutely I'm I'm acutely aware of you know first of all when a client comes to me, they are often sharing with me their deepest insecurities. Um, and my approach to beauty in general has always been to give you the healthiest skin, um, to give you the skin that you feel the best in, that makes you feel empowered, that makes you feel more confident. Um, and so I, I shy away from kind of like especially when I was a younger esthetician, um, just the cookie cutter um, kind of beauty standards, I really, I, I don't engage in and I don't encourage my clients to engage in. That's not to say that I judge people who do it. I am just always that person in your life that will tell you that you don't have to, to be the best version of yourself. I love that. So, what came next? I know that you moved to New York to pursue 
fashion photography. So at what mm-hmm. point did you realise firstly that photography wasn't your primary love and then secondly that it was in fact the beauty space that you really wanted to be in? Well, I think, you know, um, one thing that's really important to point out to younger people is that life is a winding road and you don't have to have everything figured out by the time you're 16 years old. Um, And that I'm a firm believer that letting, you know, life take you twists and turns makes life more dynamic, more fun. And I think it gives you a chance to really find what you're passionate about. I did move to New York to be a fashion photographer. I did um, have some exposure to the industry and I just really realized it wasn't, I wasn't well suited for it. I was quite um, shy. Um, I was very reserved and just this idea of pursuing a career that was all about, um, you know, being a freelancer and getting your next gig and, and all of that really didn't appeal to me. And then I remember being on a set and watching a model get her picture taken. She was quite young and, and the discussion was about, you know, her body as if she was not listening or not there. And I, I, I don't know, I found it all very disturbing and very against what I believed in. And so I went to beauty school sort of as a pivot. Um, I thought, well, perhaps I'll become a makeup artist. I, I love products. I love beauty. Um, maybe that's where um, I help create an image with a photographer. And then when I went to esthetician school, I fell in love with um taking care of somebody. I fell in love with giving facials and really holding the intimacy of holding someone's face in your hands and really um, feeling someone's trust in you and, and, you know, helping them figure out the puzzle of their skin for them. I did want to ask you about this time, knowing that you, your initial interest in beauty was really around makeup. I wanted to ask you what you thought it was that really pulled you into the skin space and what you loved about giving facials. But I guess you've just answered it, that idea of it being a caregiving experience above all. Yeah, I'm a nurturer by nature. And I think that finding myself in aesthetic school brought that out in me and made me realize that's my real gift. Um, And if I can give you your confidence, then putting on makeup is a bonus, you know, maybe you feel like you don't need makeup after I'm done with you. But there was something about that that um, really appealed to me. And I, and I think that I've really leaned into being that support system for somebody. Um, and, and I think that that's why my career went the way that it went. I completely agree with that. Cause I think also from a consumer or a client perspective, we are at, perhaps our most vulnerable when we come in and and have a facial for a lot of people they're not comfortable without having their makeup on our skin is so tied to our confidence it's a real vulnerability thing it is a vulnerability thing and I think that you have to have a safe space with it like look when we're um I talk about this a lot when you're staring at yourself in the mirror you know maybe you're washing the day off your face or whatever I find that people have a tendency to use that time instead of like 
thinking positive things and, you know, what a great day I had. They're thinking like, oh, I'm getting a wrinkle or I don't like this about my face or I wish I looked like this. And really uh, skincare for me has always been a time where I could tell somebody you're beautiful the way you are. Um, that's what my grandmother used to say to me um, about my skin, about who I was. And I, and I feel like that's the thing that I'm passing on to my clients. So where to from here? What was your very first job after getting your esthetician's license? Um, I worked at a day spa in Tribeca, which is in downtown um, Manhattan. Um, And it was like an organic, it was my first exposure to organic products. It was back when there was no real organic category or people didn't talk about it. Nobody cared about that. And, um, you know, I was struck at how good the product smelled. It really, um, you could really smell the different ingredients. And I just loved that. And I, um, it was a, a magical time for me because it was really where I met clients for the first time that really liked what I did. It was really when I realized that I was actually good at giving facials that, you know, I had a talent and, um, and it was a, it was a great first job. It was a great experience. What were some of the lessons that you took from that time when your career really was in its infancy that you find you're still applying to your work now? Um, you know, I remember, so part of your training, when you get a job as an esthetician, you have to get facials on the menu and then you run through, you get one day to kind of learn the whole menu. And back in those days, it was like, you know, seven or eight facials on the menu and a couple body treatments and that's it. And I remember the esthetician that was training me, um, gave me a glycolic peel it was part of my training. I had to know how it felt so I could give it to other people. And I broke out in horrible, horrible cystic acne from the peel. And she was like, you know, oh, better out than in. All of that was underneath your skin. Um, don't you feel better that it's purging? And I, and I had never had acne. I'd never had a cyst in my life. And I just thought like, this can't be right. And she was like, nope, that's how it's supposed to be. And, um, and anyway, I let her do it to me another time. And it, the same thing happened. And I realized I'm, I'm allergic to glycolic acid and I didn't know it until somebody kept on trying to peel away all my, the gross things that were allegedly underneath my skin. And I think the big lesson for me was like, you know, not everything works for everybody. Not everything's a wonderful experience for everybody. Um, and you know, I tell clients all the time, you know, your own skin, if something doesn't feel right, don't keep on using it and doing it, you know, like it's, it's not right. And I think we, we have this overabundance of information and, um, clients often are very, very knowledgeable when it comes to like, oh, I should be using a vitamin C serum, or I need hyaluronic acid. I need this, or I need that, but not everything works for everybody. And that was sort of like my big first lesson in that, um, by, you know, having to wait weeks for my skin to heal <laughs> from the allergic reaction that I suffered. I mean, it's still such a relevant lesson though, because it's kind of the double-edged sword 
of the internet. Everyone sees, okay, this is a a trending ingredient. This is a product that people are raving about. But with as much information that's out there, there's just as much misinformation. So they're thinking, oh, well, this works for everyone, so it'll work for me. Yeah, or like tragically when I was, I remember very much when I was a teenager and a preteen, I would see commercials on television of women with like beautiful hair and it was like a shampoo. And I was like, I want that shampoo because I want my hair to look like that. And it's like, no, that's not, you know, your, your texture is different. Your, you don't have that haircut or you didn't have someone blow it out for you. So, you know, um, even actresses do that. Like we all know that that's, you know, not what we should be thinking when we look at a product or look at an ad, but we all do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have, I'm, you know, I feel like I kind of wade through all the noise for you and kind of find that, that happy medium for your skin. I have to remind myself of that all the time. The, the technique that I use is the reminder that often ice cream in a commercial is actually mashed potato. So I think if they're pulling, <laughs> if they're pulling this trick with food, then God knows what they're doing with a beauty commercial. That's how I remind myself. Yeah, I, I um, later in my career, I found out that, you know, when I, this is back when you would read print magazines, you would ha- see the model on the cover. And then on the inside of the table of contents, it would be like the model is wearing um, NARS lipstick number 17 and this blush and this mascara. And I would purchase, I would tragically purchase those products to get the color. And I found out later that those companies pay, that's an advertising slot. That's not what the makeup artists use at all. I did not know that. So, you know, <laughs> it's things like that, that you realize, oh my goodness, I, um, I really didn't understand how this really all worked. And so, um, and I find even now, you know, I'm talking in the days pre-internet, but now with the internet, there's so much information. I think um, it's helpful to have somebody that you trust help you through it all. I completely agree. Now, if research serves me, it was in 2006 that you launched your first spa location in Bryant Park. I would love to know what it was that led you to that moment. At what point did you begin to think about starting your own business? And what was the point of difference that you wanted to add to that space? Well, I, I, at that point, I've been working for a number of years in the business and I had tried out you know, working for a dermatologist, working, you know, at that organic day spa that I mentioned, just different things to try different points of view, if you will. What do I believe in and and how how do I want to do skincare? And I think at a certain point I I realized that I wanted to create my own treatments. I I was really suffering fatigue from, you know, working in places where everybody got the same facial. And everybody was told the same stuff and sold the same products. And, um, and also I was acutely aware that, you know, in other places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, England, France, other places were doing things like using technologies in facials that, you know, often were kind of behind the times in the United States, I think in the beauty space. Um, and so I was, I felt 
like I was a young esthetician and I wanted to bring some technology into the, the conversation um, because no one was doing that in New York at that time. So all of those things were sort of percolating in my mind. Um, I also had just had a baby. I, I was newly married. I had a, um, a baby and my, my son um, got sick when he was little and it was quite scary and, and quite traumatic. And I, and I also realized I did not want to answer to anybody anymore about how I wanted to structure my life, structure my facial, um, how I wanted to sell things. I just was like, you know, I'm going to go out on my own. This is what I need to do for me. This is what I need to do for my family. And that's really what kind of pushed me um, to taking a chance. And mind you, like in New York at that time, the only people that had businesses were these like $20 million build outs, like these big, huge day spas. And you would get like, you know, a forehand massage and all this luxury. And, and, you know, I, my husband and I started our business on credit cards and it was a tiny little uh, space and um, tiny two room space. And um, we didn't have a big budget, but I knew what I was doing. And I knew that if I spent the investment on what I was doing to you, the technologies I was bringing in, that um, it would resonate with people. And that's what happened. Budget aside, what were some of the challenges of those early days of business ownership? And then I guess on the flip side of that coin, was there a big break moment of sorts? Um, I mean, you know, I think the biggest challenge was just figuring out how to get the phone to ring. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of times when you start a business, you don't think about that. Um, It was... We, we built a website and we thought that that would automatically bring clients, but people don't see your website unless they're looking for you or something, but we didn't know that then. Um, and it was sort of like the dawn of social media also. Um, and so figuring out how to tell people that I existed was very, very challenging and very uh, stressful. Um, I, I had two kind of big breaks in a row. Um, I somehow Allure magazine found out that I existed and these were the days where they had a directory and they would send editors out in secret to get a facial and they would rate it and they would list it in their directory if they liked it. But they wouldn't tell you I'm from Allure magazine or anything like that. They would just pretend to be a client. Mm. Um, And so they found out about me. I don't have no idea how. And um, they sent somebody in to have a facial. And I was like, how did you hear about me? Because so few people know about me. And she was like, I don't know, just from a friend. And I was like, who? What friend? Anyway, I, something was fishy and I didn't know like what, because I only did friends of friends and whatever, but she really loved me and they included me in the directory. And I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening to me. Um, I felt so lucky and so happy. They said the nicest things about me. And that was really like a big deal. It was a big deal because everybody read Allure magazine. Um, And then the second big thing was there was an online 
publication. Um, it was actually a newsletter. It was called Daily Candy. Anybody who is from New York, who was in New York uh, 20 years ago, will know who what Daily Candy is. It was this thing that you signed up for, and it was kind of a secret. And it was your daily candy. It was like secret recommendations of the best of the best in New York. And um, they did a story on me. And again, you couldn't ask to be in daily candy. They had It had to be secret. You couldn't be well known to be in it, but it would make your business explode. And so someone came to see me and they wrote a huge story about me. And then clients from the past Start read it and they they found me and then it kind of snowballed and then everybody was recommending me and it was very much organic and word of mouth after that. Well, you've given me a perfect segue because my understanding of your marketing strategy was really that there was no strategy. It was just word of mouth, (laughs) provide provide treatments that worked was the strategy. Exactly. That was it. I was, if I was going to have a client that day, I was going to make it the best facial Mm. I knew how to do. And I wanted to make it so good that when you walked out of my salon that you would tell your friend and you would tell your mom. Well, that clearly worked because it was from here that you began to accumulate a pretty extensive list of celebrity clients, Julianne Moore, Dakota Johnson, Naomi Watts, just to name a couple. What do you think it is? This might be a difficult one to answer, but what do you think it is about your specific approach to the skin that you think resonates with so many people? Um, I think it goes back to being sincere with people and doing what's best for them and kind of not trying to push people in a direction. There's so many, I had a client the other day tell me she's an actor, uh, a young one, and she went to a derm and um, in a sort of a sensitive, vulnerable place. And the, and that person talked her into, you know, $10,000 worth of treatments and things mm. that she didn't, you know, like a 27 year old doesn't mean all of that, you know? And I think um, people like me because I'm honest with them. Um, if you come to me and ask me where you should get filler in your face, I'm going to tell you that I don't think that you need it. Um, I'm going to tell you where the places to go are that I, of people that I trust if you insist, but I'm not going to push you into things. I'm going to see what works for you. I often will not um, try to sell you a bunch of products the first time you come because I want to see how your skin reacts. I like to learn about skin over time. And I think people just really learn to trust me immediately. And, um, I do a lot of research. I'm very, um, I'm very into the science behind what I do. And, um, I think that that all resonates when you want to look your best and not look different from who you are. And you're not trying to be, you know, um, somebody else. I'm your girl. I know how to do that. So 2006, you launch your first location. We fast forward Mm -hmm. to 2011, you launch your namesake product line. What Mm -hmm. led to that launch? What did you feel was missing from the existing skincare offering? And what did you aspire to add to it? Um, I just wasn't, 
when we first launched the business, you know, when it's your own thing, you, you know, I, I just couldn't find products that I loved. And, um, there were, it's not to say there weren't good ones, but they weren't right for me for this or that reason. And so, um, I decided to try to work on it. Um, and my, my first product was, it was very difficult to do just because it was an unusual, um, idea I had in my head, uh, a green juice for your skin. It's called the daily, daily serum. serum and, mm-hmm. and, um, I, it took me two years to do that one, one product. But when I nailed it, I was like, this is special. This is what I exactly what I wanted. And it has been my top selling product pretty much worldwide since it launched. Um, and like a, you know, a, a real fan favorite because it is unusual. It's chlorophyll and greens, there's spinach and broccoli in there and, um, and things that, you know, um, make sense for the skin. Um, and I just really wanted to focus on good nutrition for the skin. That was my whole, um, focus. And I didn't really see that in the landscape at that time. Obviously that's changed a lot since, um, 2011. Um, but I still think that, you know, uh, the, the way that I formulate is from the treatment chair. I know what people are asking for. I listen to what people's skin is telling me. And I try to formulate with that thoughtfulness, like what, what treatments, um, I think are the best for your skin and and what would complement that. So about a two year process, how did you physically go about creating the brand? How did you decide which products to launch with? How did you find the right manufacturer? There are so many steps involved between saying, I want to create these products and having them physically ready to go. Yeah. I mean, look, um, finding a manufacturer, you just have to find it's, it's interviewing anybody or, or finding a partner, um, for anything, even in your personal life, you have to find a balance of chemistry, someone you could really talk to and, and that you feel understands what you're looking for. And also somebody who will value you. Um, you know, we were, I was a nobody back then. So somebody who would value my company or what I wanted to do, even though I, I, you know, I hadn't, I was a very small business. So um, that's how we went about finding a manufacturer. Um, it, our original manufacturer was in Florida. And so it was some place that I could easily jump on an airplane from New York and be there a very short time. It's a short plane ride over. So I would go to Florida for the day and hang out in the lab with the chemists and really play with things until we got it right. And, um, and, you know, it's just testing on myself, testing on my friends, testing on some trusted clients who I loved and respected, um, until I had something that I truly loved. And that's how I did. That's how I formulated products and excuse. I picked things that I thought I wanted to make an edited routine that made sense at that time, you know, New York women were not putting a 10 step routine on their face. That's not what they were doing. It was like, if I have two minutes of your time in the morning and three minutes in the evening, what are those essential products that I'm going to be like, okay, put this on and go, 
or after the gym, throw the serum on and go. So it was kind of like thinking about my clients and what they wanted from me. Um, so it was a very tight edit at that time. Yeah, it was about four or five SKUs. I know the product yeah. portfolio sits somewhere around 15 or 16 products today. How it's does that? Actually 20, 28. But 28? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. 28. Well, there you go. How does that product development process work for you? Are you working off what your consumers and your clients are asking for? Or are you always thinking about what you're going to do next? Or is it a little bit of both? Um, it's both. It's look, people come to me because they consider me an expert and I have to be thoughtful about like, um, you know, what's the best way to hydrate the skin when the skin's all out of whack in the winter, or what's the best serum to use in the summertime when you're sweating and you don't want a lot of product in your eyes, but you have to wear sunscreen or whatever, right? There's that, but I listen to my clients all the time. I still do. Um, I work as a facialist five days a week still because I love it. And, um, I kind of listen to what people are coming in, what challenges they're facing or what lifestyle changes that they're going through, um, that I think, oh, that's something that I should make for that person. And also just, you know, the evolving knowledge that I have over time when I was in college, my knowledge of a good diet um, came from Cosmo magazine. And it was like, if you want to lose 10 pounds in a week, eat pineapple all day and then eat a plate of pasta at dinner and you'll lose 10 pounds. And, you know, obviously that's not good. Simple. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered why it didn't work. Um, And, you know, fast forward 30 years to now, and um, I'm studying to be a nutritionist, but like gut health, inflammation, inflammation being the precursor to aging. All of those things are things that I think about that inform what I pick to, to formulate next. On that product line, I would love to chat more about the Magic Glow Wand, which for those unaware is a home facial device that you launched in 2020. I understand that this was inspired by the lymphatic treatments that you offer clients in the spa, but what more can you tell us about the device? Well, um, there are four settings. There's a hot setting, hot plus massage, cold, and then cold plus massage. So really the inspiration behind that device is if you can't come to me for a facial, I want to be with you in your bathroom when you're doing the facial yourself. So those four settings kind of structure, um, one of the facials that we have that's very popular in the salon, it's a, it's a traditional, you know, deep cleansing facial. Um, when you get a facial at the salon, we put exfoliating mask on, which is one of my products. And then we put the steam on, which would be the hot setting. And then once the steam has been on for a few minutes, then we start massaging it into the face um, to get a good exfoliation going, a proper spa exfoliation. And so that's the heat plus massage. Then you rinse off your exfoliating mask and then you put on um, a sheet mask or a treatment mask. Um, So that would be used with the cold setting because we do cryotherapy after that. Um, So cryotherapy reduces inflammation. It's, it 
it is amazing for kind of like, you know, tightening up the skin overall. Um, and it just brings down the appearance of redness in the skin. Um, then you take the mask off and do a serum on the face, which we massage into the skin. And that's your cold plus massage setting. The way that the massage feels mimics um, how I was taught to do lymphatic drainage massage. I'm certified in Dr. Vodder's um, lymphatic drainage for the face and neck. And it's a very gentle pulsating massage. And that's the type of massage in that device. It's gentle, it's pulsating, and it really helps to contour and um, lift and, you know, increase the glow factor while you're doing all the steps of an at-home facial, maybe on a Sunday when you're having a bath. While we're on the spa treatments, how do you go mm. about developing these? From what I've read, it really, you, I mean, your approach is really about long-term skin health as opposed to just fast trends in the salon. Yeah, you know, I'm always trying to be thoughtful about what's an alternative to thinking you need a facelift? What's an alternative to constantly thinking that you need to get filler or, or preventative Botox? Um, you know, there's a lot out there now. Technology is our best friend when it comes to beauty. And um, it's just choosing the right things that I think will be safe and effective and yield the best result, no matter your skin type or your skin tone. So it's kind of like, um, what would work whether you're 25 or 85, because I have clients of all ages in the salon. Um, and so I tried to pick things, technologies that work for everybody. So I have non-invasive technologies, which I think are really important. Um, you know, they don't traumatize the skin. They're good if your skin is sensitive. And then I have minimally invasive treatments like laser and microneedling with radio frequency and, and, and things of that nature that, you know, turn up the notch a little bit on collagen production, which we all need, mm -hmm. um, which will um, keep your, your skin high and tight, uh, no matter your age. Collagen production is at the forefront of my mind at all times. I'm just trying to maintain this for as long as is possible without having Honestly, to do anything. I, I think of I think of it a lot too. I mean, I just turned 52 on Monday, and you know, you have to like the the more years you walk the planet, the more you have to be like, okay, I'm gonna get more. I'm gonna be more vigilant about my facial services. You look 30. See, I'm 29, so I keep getting told, "Oh, you've got to get onto that preventative Botox before it's too late." I'm 29, I, for God's sake. I also, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it it bothers me the preventative Botox. It's if you want to do it, that's cool, that's fine. But there's so many other things that you could do as a preventative measure. Um, most 29 year olds don't wear sunscreen regularly. I've worn you, it every single day since I was 13. So, and honestly, you look like it, your skin is flawless, you know? Um, but like wear a hat, um, get facials once a month, invest in, in microcurrent facials or radio frequency facials. If you're worried about like maintaining elasticity, um, and collagen production, because radio frequency a non-invasive technology increases collagen production by like 18% if you do it in a series, which is like major. 
um, for a non-invasive technique. So there are other things, you know, if you don't want to go that route. Also, I'm 52. I've not had Botox, like leave yourself room to grow. Like maybe you want Botox when you're later, but if you've been doing it since you were 29, I, I don't know, you're not leaving yourself any, anything else to do. I just think you're going to look overdone too early. Yeah. That's, that's my way of thinking as well. On the business side of things, you entirely self-funded your brand, as you mentioned, you know, putting things on credit mm-hmm. cards earlier. You announced a couple of months ago that Super Ordinary, a beauty brand accelerator, had purchased a majority stake to help fund the brand's international expansion and distribution, which is so exciting. Why did this feel like the perfect partnership? Because I would imagine this is something that you really had to, you know, really think about because it is exactly that, a partnership. And what can we expect to see from the brand as that international expansion takes shape? Well, I think just going back to my husband and I have always done things together. Um, as you mentioned, we did, we've done everything together. Uh, we grew this business together and, you know, we have been approached many, many times. Um, I think that the, um, the founder of super ordinary is a very special person that we just connected with. And I think, you know, what we were looking for is, um, a partner that would help us grow in ways that we could no longer do. It's kind of like when you send your child to school because, you know, there's only so much, you know, about math. We just wanted to bring in some experts to help us. And, you know, quite frankly, I've always had an international brand in the sense that I have clients that come to me from all over the world. Um, And, I really wanted, I looked for somebody that I felt like, um, you know, would help me grow in, in places where I have fans, but I've, um, not been able to get to, uh, Australia being one, um, Asia being another, I have tons of clients in the UK and, and, uh, fans in the UK. So it's just kind of like, I'm only one person. So I just needed some help in kind of like figuring out how I was going to get everywhere and still, um, and, and still be present for my, my kids and to be home. So, um, it was just the right thing at the right time. You have sat at the helm of your own business since 2006. Since then, what have been some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? Well, you know, I, I'm, slightly mentioned this earlier I know it's mind-blowing to think about but I opened the business before Instagram existed Mm. (laughs) so there's that let that let that ruminate for a minute I mean like you know there was only Facebook and Facebook was like this weird thing Mm. um so there have been so many changes I mean people used to buy print magazines now nobody buys those um so the whole game was to get it get your you know, first article in, in Vogue and, and now they're like, it's different, you know? Um, so the conversation has changed. The way we converse has changed to clients, to, to the public. I feel much more connected to people who buy my products now than I could have ever have done before, because there was no way to have that conversation. Um, 
And I think, you know, when I started out as an esthetician, at least in New York City, it was very much about one, one skin type. It was about one skin tone and one type of skin and everybody else had to sort themselves out on their own. And to see the um, conversation of inclusion expand, um, the, the, um, just the ability to, to even be myself as my, my tattooed uh, Latina self, um, you know, there was nobody that looked like me in back in the day. Absolutely no. It was all like, you know, you had to play yoga music and wear white and talk in hushed tones during a facial. I mean, a lot of times when I give facials to my clients, we're like so loud and laughing and talking and having a party. And it's, it, you know, um, it's a beauty world that allows for that point of difference now more than ever. And for that, I'm, I'm, I'm very, happy and and thankful that my when my daughter looks at social media she'll see people that look like her and um not wish that she was born with blonde hair you know um it's just a different place so those are some of the changes that we have seen what changes do you think that we can expect to see from the beauty industry over the next few years um, I think that we have a lot more work to be done in terms of inclusion, um, in, in terms of, um, you know, kind of making sure that um, brands have an opportunity to, to have their moment. Um, it is very, very competitive. It's very hard um, to make it. In the beauty space, um, it often does feel like the Hunger Games, um, and I I have spent a lot of my last ten years really trying to um, boost up others and um, and make sure that everybody got a chance to be heard. When I felt like, oh wow, this product is something special. Um, as far as like trends and things go. Um, I, I think that devices are going to be uh, continue to be the wave of the future. I think building out your own little moment in your bathroom of like, you know, your, your skincare devices and things that, you know, enhance your wellness and your health are going to be a big thing. And I think moving forward in the beauty space, I already see it. We're taking that that whole conversation about your gut health and inflammation and we're bringing it into the into the skincare space you know what supports your microbiome on your skin and 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 um what supports your immune system better so that your skin can function um at its at its optimum so all of those things i think we're going to see in the future as well my final question what is next <laughs> for joanna vargas skincare um, well, we are, we have exciting plans to expand, um, into Asia, into, um, this next few years. Um, I'm going to be now that some of the world, most of the world, Asia is still a little bit of a challenge in terms of travel. Mm. I am going to be traveling more. I had so many trips planned, including going to Australia um, the year that the pandemic began. So 
um, traveling more and um, doing more uh, in-store, meeting more people, doing more events where I can touch more people's faces and get to know um, people all over is something that we're going to see. We have a couple of really exciting launches in the next um, little while that I'm really excited about because often I'm done with formulas for years before we could bring it into the market just because I have to, you know, you can't bring out 20 products a year. So I'm excited about the next launches that we're doing. And um, and yeah, I'm excited that the world is, is kind of opened up again so that we could travel again. That was Joanna Vargas, founder of Joanna Vargas, who you can find on Instagram at Joanna Vargas and at Joanna Vargas NYC. To read more, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.